The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. The Prima Deer, session number 538. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we jump in and say hello to our guests today, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Did you know one of the best ways to prepare for the MCAT is by taking practice exams and by signing up for a free account over at Blueprint MCAT. You get a half-length diagnostic and a free full-length, as well as other great tools to help you get the score that you need. Go over to blueprintmcat.com today and get that free account. So what happens when you hear someone talking about something that maybe you don't agree with. Well, I know what I do. I go headfirst into amazing conversations, and that is what happened today with Dr. Tricia Pendergrast, a first-year anesthesia resident, and we're going to talk about a TikTok video that I came across where she was disagreeing with another TikToker and talking about how matchless are probably one of the most important things in her mind to help students figure out where they should go to medical school. Now, after this conversation, I don't know if I fully agree, but I understand her point that what she's trying to make. And instead of typically when I hear students looking at matchless and going, hey, I think I'm interested in orthopedics, I'm going to go look at the schools that have the best ortho matchless. I think looking at the matchless overall with a grain of salt, as you'll hear in this episode, may be a good thing. And uh, Trisha talks to me about that. Let's go and say hello. Trisha, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. When did you first realize you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, I went back and forth about what I wanted to do with my life all through college. I actually was an athletic trainer um, when I was in in college at Northwestern and thought I wanted to do that Mm -hmm. Um, and then thought I wanted to do a psychology degree. And I was actually writing my personal statement for a PhD program, a psychology program. And I wrote about an on-field emergency that I addressed when I was an athletic trainer and someone took it and read it. It was like, this reads like you want to be a doctor. This is, you can't apply to these. This is ridiculous. You clearly want to be involved in this aspect of patient care. And I was like, huh, you know, I think you're right. (laughs) Why do you think you had that block? Um, I don't know. I think, you know, I was trying to avoid what I knew was the thing I really wanted to do. Um, there's a lot to be concerned about in the field of medicine in terms of burnout and mental health concerns and working so dang hard. And I think I was trying to do everything else. Um, and it kind of speaks to the advice I give people, which is, you know, before you commit yourself to this pathway, before you choose medicine, be sure, right? (laughs) Be sure it's what you truly want to do. 
Um, and that way, when you are working 90 hours a week, you're like, this is where I have to be. And it, I think it makes it more palatable. <laughs> well, let's, let's be careful. It's 80 hours averaged over. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Do not put in more than that during your residency, Tricia. Right. Um, so, so it's interesting. It sounded like you had a lot of insight into medicine and, and kind of put some blinders on and be like, I don't see you. I, I don't want right. to look at you. Do, do you have okay. family in healthcare that gave you that insight? No object permanence. Um, <laughs> so no, um, I, my dad is a retired flight paramedic. That's the only family member I have who is medical at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually love, I loved growing up watching him, you know, the helicopter once landed in our backyard in rural Illinois, just to test their dispatch. Like I just, such wow. a cool, I know yeah. you're, uh, um, into that sort of medical space as well. Um, no, I mean, I just, I really thought it was important to do my research and talk to people who were going through it before committing myself financially, emotionally, all the other things. Um, yeah. And then by the, I'm very non-traditional. I was 25 years old when I started medical school. So I had a lot of time to do research as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that contributed to my, uh, perhaps hesitance to jump into the field. Okay. All right. So you went in with eyes wide open <laughs> and and now have come out on the other side. Uh, you're about to start your anesthesia residency, I believe. Congratulations Correct. on Thank graduating. You. You, you got through medical school. Was mm-hmm. it everything you hoped it'd be or everything you feared it would be? That's a loaded question. <laughs> it was in medical school during COVID yeah. um, because my entire second year of medical school was remote. And I spent the majority of my time actually um, working on an organization that got masks to physicians. So um, school was the other thing I was doing during COVID. It was a very strange experience. Um, yeah, I, it, it was a lot of what I expected. I expected a lot of people who used to be passionate who ended up burnt out. Mm-hmm. And it's really disheartening to go through this process and sort of watch the light leave your colleagues eyes um, and come out the other end. And people are already sort of planning their exit strategies for medicine um, after being really excited only four years ago. Um, but there was also a lot of wonderful experiences. I had so many amazing interactions with patients, even as a student, that makes me excited to actually be able to practice medicine as a, as a resident. Um, but there was a little bit of both. It was better in some ways than I thought it was going to be, but in a lot of ways, it was exactly what I thought. Yeah. What, what do you think helped get you through specifically? Oh, um, I, my support system, um, my, my husband, my, my mom, my friends, that the advice that I give a lot of people as well, when choosing a med school is if you're at all inclined to stay near your people and that's important to you. That is a totally valid reason to choose a medical school. Um, I am from Illinois. I went to Northwestern for undergrad. My friends were in Chicago. My husband, my now husband was in Chicago. And so um, that was a huge component of my decision-making when I had a handful of sort of equivalent schools. And I know pre-meds listen to that podcast. So I just want to validate that decision-making for anyone listening because it's so important. Yeah. So let's talk about that school list, right? Choosing schools. You just mentioned location, obviously support structure, very important to a lot of people. Um, I came across you randomly because 
faith uh, TikTok's yeah. algorithms, <laughs> like, hey, this person disagrees with you, so we're gonna show them to you. Um, and and you had a very interesting take on how pre med students should pick schools. And you you said I think the top five things are matchless, 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 and matchless. How did you come to that conclusion? Um, yeah, it's funny. They're like cage match. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I taking a step back, and I will answer the question. Right, we as a field in medicine, pre meds, medical student, everyone sort of romanticizes medicine. We for so long have viewed this as a calling and anytime we've attempted to be critical of the field or advocate for ourselves, I mean, this was a huge problem with residents trying to get like health insurance in the nineties. Um, the answer is always, you're not being professional. Medicine is a calling. You're lucky to be here. How dare you be critical get in line. of this field, yeah. right? You're, you're lucky to be a doctor. How dare you want better for yourself? And so that's sort of my perspective on a lot of elements in medicine. Let, let me let me pause let me pause for one second because as you say that, I I have a very vivid movie that pops into my mind that I won't talk about yet. <laughs> but I want to I want to th- hear your perspective on why there is that mentality. Why do you think there's that mentality of like? get in line, know your role, like, don't, don't speak up. It's like this authoritative kind of um, world that we live in as as med students and residents. Where do you think that comes from? And then I'll give you my perspective. <laughs> so in part, it's by design, right? Mm-hmm. The strict hierarchy of medicine was built into the fabric of the first residency, which was designed to exploit the labor of its residents. Yep. Um, the residency, it was created because the surgeon needed people to do his labor because he was under the influence of, of various substances. And so that hierarchy has not really been challenged mm-hmm. substantially over the last century. And in some ways, I think it's gotten you know more stringent. And so part of it's by design. I think the other component you alluded to a movie is we romanticize the heck out of the medical field in TV and movies and on TikTok. I'll see, you know, these very cute, well-produced day in the life of a medical student. Um, and everything looks so beautiful and picture perfect when in reality, you know, the majority of people in the medical school class are struggling with de- depression and anxiety. We miss our families and we're, we're not getting paid for our labor. And so I think, that's a huge component of it as well. And part of the other reason why I make videos on TikTok is because I don't want to romanticize things. I want pre-meds to know exactly what they're getting into. Yeah. Um, and I think we have a responsibility to adequately represent our field when we can so people aren't flying blind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and you kind of alluded it uh, alluded to it earlier when you were like, I want to make sure, like, are you sure there's nothing else, right? It's that I'm old sure. cliche <laughs> saying of if there's anything in this world that you can see yourself doing, don't do medicine um, yeah. because it's it's just one of those things. So the movie that I immediately thought of when you talked about, like, you can't speak up, it's not professional. And and I don't know, I, I have kids, so I, I love Pixar movies. I don't know if you've seen sure. um, uh, A Bug's Life. Right. To me, it's, it's all of the ants and the grasshoppers who are the attendings, right? The ants are all <laughs> the med students and residents. And and there's this one one ant flick that's like, hey, like w- we have the power here mm-hmm. um, and they they destroy the grasshoppers. Right. And it's it's like 
and, and you alluded to it, right? It's it's very cheap labor, if not free labor for, for medical students. And the, the, the powers that be are like, we need to keep everyone in line or else this whole system goes kaput. Right. Yeah. All right. Keep going. Um, so, so that that very broad, broad stroke, sort of my approach to thinking about the profession, which is an absolute privilege to be a part of, right? But at the end of the day, this is a job. Um, and so when I think about choosing a medical school, when I think about a medical education, I view that as an investment, right? I made a $280,000, $300,000 investment in myself, Mm -hmm. in my financial future. And I expect a substantial payback on the investment of my time and money. The only thing you can really compare that type of investment to is buying a house for most of us. That's, you know, medical education and buying a house are the most expensive things we will do in our lifetime. And um, to sort of just keep this analogy going, like when you buy a house, you, sure, you're like, it's in a good area. I like the house. It's pretty. That dishwasher looks really shiny. But before you hand over, you know, the cash, the person who is selling you the house has to disclose what's wrong with it, first of all. And someone comes in and evaluates those claims to make sure everyone's telling the truth. And we really don't have that mechanism for premeds, right? We don't have a way to ensure that medical schools are being open and honest about match data, for example. About so match have- data, yeah. I mean, we have the LCME and, and COCA, the accreditation bodies for medical schools. Right, but they, they have up until now, not gotten involved in making sure that match data is um, yeah. pr- produced in a transparent way that doesn't serve the medical schools. So, yeah. and, and that's the caveat, right, to my advice, because I'm giving advice about something that you cannot 100% fall through on, but I think it's so important because when I view making that investment in medical education, the payback has to be through residency training. Mm-hmm. And so if you cannot verify that the investment you're making financially, your time, your money, your energy is going to be paid back, that's not a good investment. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's that mindset, maybe not um, sitting there and combing through match lists, but that mindset is what I want pre-meds to have when choosing a medical school, being critical of what you're being sold Mm -hmm. by these schools, what's being promoted to you on their website and going beyond the shiny facade, the nice dishwasher, and actually getting in there and kicking the foundation. Yeah. So so what does that look like, right? So you talk about looking at a match list. What should a student actually be looking at? What What's important to them? Because my biggest fear when, when I heard you talk about, hey, match list is the most important thing, the first thing that pops into my mind, and I was looking for more recent data, but, but data that I saw several years ago is, 75% of students change their minds once they're in medical school in terms of residency and specialty. And so if they're using match lists to go, oh, look, I'm interested in anesthesia, I'm going to go to this school because they have a higher uh, anesthesia match. And then they they go to that school and then they're like, well, actually, I like psychiatry. And the school like is last in psychiatry. Right. Uh, so that was my big fear. So what are you having students look at? What do you suggest there? I, I think that's a great point. Right. And I was one, I swore up and down that I was going to be a pediatric critical care medicine. <laughs> you were not changing my mind. Um, how dare you suggest different? And then I did an anesthesia and I was like, oh, Lord, okay. Switching gears. Um, you got a whiff of that gas and you're like, hello, I can do this all day. 
No, they're like, do you want to sit? Do you want coffee? <laughs> some for what? you, some for me. <laughs> <laughs> I would like a coffee anesthesia attending. Uh, that's, how they, that's how they get everyone. Um, I digress. No, it's a, it's a very valid point. Um, what I think you should look for when you're looking at these match lists is um, variety, right? Like to your point, pre-meds coming in and they don't know if they want to do psychiatry or peds, are they only matching people into internal medicine programs and family medicine programs? Is there a little bit of derm, a little bit of plastics, a little bit of ortho? Are they doing a little bit and is it maintained over time? I think the longitudinal trajectory of these trends is also really important because if they get to school and they say, oh my gosh, I love orthopedic surgery and that school doesn't have a history of getting people into ortho programs, yeah. you're, you're in a really tr- tricky situation and the school is going to say, okay, well, yep, forge your own path. And that's, that's a really hard thing to do as a, you know, as a third year medical student. Yeah. So here, here's another point of contention that I have with, with the language that you just used. If the school doesn't have a history of getting students into ortho, mm-hmm. what does that mean in your mind? Um, I mean, objectively, that to me is they haven't matched people to ortho. Yeah. Easy, easy question. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's so many other factors, right? Mm-hmm. That could mean they don't have a home program. Mm-hmm. That could mean that they don't have strong mentorship. That could mean that um, it's not a program that traditionally has a lot of people going to surgical specialties. And I think we're also heading for the MD versus DO versus IMG conversation. I think that's also important. Um because there is a lot of anti-DO bias, anti-IMG bias. And so I think being aware of that as well is important when making your decisions. Because if you are inclined for, or we'll just keep using orthopedic surgery as an example, and you know it might be something you want to do, waiting a couple years to get, you know, maybe you need to retake the MCAT or do more research or do these things to put yourself in a position to pursue a school that usually gets people into ortho programs, I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so what you just said, if a student potentially doesn't have an MCAT score, GPA, whatever, to potentially make them competitive for an MD school, maybe they get into a DO school if they were to apply. What you're recommending is, hey, because we know there's this MD, DO bias, IMG bias, wait a little bit. Right. And that's been my general recommendation for definitely going overseas, going to the Caribbean, et cetera. There, there's definitely uh, a huge IMG bias. Um, there still is DO bias at, at specific programs. Um, there was, it was a, a, a Northwestern um, program director that I spoke to. Uh, I won't, I won't name names, but he, <laughs> he basically was like, we don't look at DOs cause we got plenty of MD applications. So we don't, we don't need to look at DOs. I'm like, okay, that's definitely. Uh, and then other programs are like, we don't separate uh, MD DO. It's all one big pile for us. So it, it all depends. So it's, it's interesting, right? Definitely is it, for orthopedics. Is there no home program? Uh, DOs are definitely at a disadvantage because a lot of, uh, if not most DO programs, uh, don't have big academic medical centers that they're tied to. And so a first year student coming in can't just walk across the street and go, Hey, orthopedic program director, I'm interested in ortho point me in the right direction, right? For research, for mentorship, for whatever it is. And so definitely right. The, the access to resources that a school provides, is definitely something that potentially has huge impact on residency potential. 
Oh yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, but there's there's this, for me, it's like, okay, if there's less access, then is that individual student resourceful enough? Are they are they diligent enough? Uh, can they persevere enough? Which is putting a lot of pressure on the student to, right. instead of walking across the street, they drive 30 minutes to to the, the other med school and, and big academic medical center. And so that's where... Uh, I, I think just the difference in, and maybe it's semantics where you're saying, hey, it's the school that gets the student into the program. And I'm like, it's the student that gets the student into the program, right? It's it's up to yeah. the individual student because we all know that student in med school that had all of the opportunities sitting right there and they sat on their butt and played video games all day and didn't worry about research and didn't worry about mentorship and didn't worry about all of those other things that are important for, for matching into residency. Yeah, I think the... I agree that there are person and school level factors. I think part of the issue is we're getting to such a point with residency applications, especially now that step one has become pass fail, Mm -hmm. where the research productivity that's going to be expected from medical students is going to increase. Um, Why do you think that? Right. We, We obviously know from the data that those who match have tons more research, but that's a correlation, not causation. Like, have you interviewed uh, program directors and they're telling you it, yeah, research is the most important thing we, we can look at these days? I don't think they said the most important, but there was a survey study of program directors where they basically said, or no, they didn't. Be, they actually said, now that step one is pass fail, what matters more to you? And they said research Okay, uh, was their answer. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's me making a conclusion based on a survey study, which of course has flaws, yeah. but it was a survey program. But it's director. from them. Okay. Awesome. I would love to see that if, if you can link to, yeah. uh, for me. Yeah. So and they also entered school prestige as well in a different study. That was for surgical program directors, but that was another thing that was asked about was what's going to matter more. And they said prestige of your medical school. Yeah. Prestige is one that, that kind of, I don't know, pisses me off. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right word because a lot of the people who say prestige matters went to prestigious schools. And so it's just this like self-fulfilling prophecy of like, well, I went to Harvard, so obviously that's important for me. (laughs) Um, I'm like, yeah, and, right? Um, I mean, to me, the the few program directors that I talked to um, when it was announced that step one was going past fail, they're like, "Uh, step two, (laughs) right? Step two still scored. So obviously it's still... The, uh, the huge factor. And, and and to me, I was like, if you made step one pass fail, just make them all pass fail. They shouldn't be scored. They're licensing exams, not quantitative or qual- whatever the right word is there for, right. for yeah. like we as a They're society, exactly. We as a society have said, this is the baseline for you to treat people in our country. If you score above that baseline, you're not a better doctor. It's just like, right. Whatever. So it's, it's dumb and, and just adds more stress to students. So uh, when when you're looking at that that match list again, you talked about the the kind of validity of that match list that a school puts out and potentially things that they can do to to cook the book, so to speak. Oh, yeah. T- talk about what med schools can do to make their match rates look better than maybe they really are. Yeah, I think this is something that's also really important because if you're not going to take the very aggressive option of talking to or of of looking at match lists, I think talking to M4s at the program, especially during those off the record times, I'm doing bunny quotes for people who are listening, off the record times, 
um, during your interview day and asking about the match experience is great qualitative data. Um, because like I said earlier, like the promotional materials for these schools are just that promotional materials designed to make them look good. So there are a lot of scenarios that can happen in the match that are less than optimal that medical schools can still spin to make it seem like their students have matched. So for example, um, you can have a resident, an M4 class of hundred students and all hundred of them fully match to their top choice specialty. And that is a hundred percent match, but you can also have a class of hundred medical students where 75 of them match to their top choice specialty. And then you have 10 of them partially match to a preliminary year program. So that's a program where it's either internal medicine or surgery for one year as a bridge to an advanced spot, which is a part of some people's residency journey. Mm. But if you only do one year, you're not board eligible. Those are kind of dead end positions. You might have five people in that class of 100 who soaked. So they didn't open an email on the Monday of match week. And no, they, um, they did open an email. It just said the wrong well, they thing. Did. It just didn't say what they correct. <laughs> Uh, it said the, it said we're sorry you didn't match any position and they had to scramble into a new spot or maybe in in the span of 72 hours they had to switch from the specialty they've been aspiring to for the last three years or 10 years or for their whole life yeah. to er <laughs> into a different specialty <laughs> e em um, poor em this year with 555 open spots lots of people soaked into em but all of these scenarios that i'm talking yeah. about are match students and then you can Correct. have students who matched to their second choice specialty because they dual apply or some schools will count students taking a research year as matched. And so you have, all which of is these terrible, right? I matched into research. <laughs> I know. I think Brian uh, Carmody, who I love on, on Twitter, I and would, I've had him yeah. on the podcast several times. He called, he called out one school. He's like, since when is matching to a research year uh, a match? Like, uh, no, that's not right. Right. And then of course you have, the students who maybe started medical school and are not going to finish the yeah. attrition rate in USMD schools, I think is three or 4%. That's not, that's not nobody either. And so there, these lists don't really capture. Oh, and then the last scenario would be um, a student who the school says you're not competitive enough to apply this year, please take a research year and try again next year. Yeah. And so they don't participate in the match and don't count towards that match percentage, but they're also not counting against it. Yeah. Even though there are students who are deferring their, dream for a year and also the financial earnings down the line of one year of attending. Yeah. Marketing, right? It's, it's marketing right. at the end of the day, schools are putting that out as marketing. And, and I've had the same discussions for parents, helping parents understand when they're trying to help their kids look at undergraduate institutions and they're like, Hey, this undergraduate institution says they, get 96% of their students into medical school. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Right. And, and you have to go ask the pre-health office how they're counting that data. Are they counting everyone that they interact with? Are they counting right. only the students that they will say they will help through the process who have right. certain GPA and MCAT numbers that for them to go, oh yeah, your, your stat is good enough. We're going to help you. Your stats aren't good enough. We're not going to help you. We're not going to count you. And, and, Everyone's playing games to protect their job and to uh, to make their their school their institution look better. So again, we come back to what's a student supposed to do if they can't trust the match list? Uh, 
do they do they go onto Student Doctor Network onto those school specific threads and say, hey, I, I want to reach out to M4s that are at this school. I, I want to ask you some questions. Or do they just go in knowing that everyone's lying and you just do your best to cross your fingers? Everything is bad and <laughs> it can't get better. No. Um, also, I was shaking my head no for the Student Doctor Network because that is just a quagmire of <laughs> bad things. Agreed. Um, no, no, I think you have to be as a pre-med, as a responsible consumer of a medical education, um, the collector of information from varied sources. I think especially if you are in the very fortunate position to be deciding between multiple medical schools, or maybe you're trying to figure out if you want to be a little non-traditional and spend a couple years um, improving your application. I think the match lists have pros and cons. On the one hand, it's some objective data. However, that data, those data are flawed. I think you should talk to students at the schools because as an M4 or as a PGY1 who just graduated from Feinberg, I can speak to my experience matching at Feinberg. And I can talk to you about how, you know, I met with my deans when, you know, they had a system and I could tell you what their system was for soap because I asked. And so we will have that knowledge of that experience. Um, And I think that's a great thing to ask about when you go for your second look. And if you don't interact with an M4, someone will have the number of an M4. I think that's a great way to use that time. Mm -hmm. So I think you really just have to be the collector of of varied information. Mm -hmm. Um, You wouldn't read one Amazon review before buying a couch. (laughs) So, you know, get in there and read them, including the five stars and the one stars and see what people are saying. Yeah. Do you recommend uh, a pre-med reach out to schools before an acceptance or before applying and go, hey, someone on TikTok said you lie about your match rates. Can you tell me the truth? I think that's a great idea. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a, a reasonable degree of tact that you need to have when asking about these sensitive issues. Just like when I was applying for residency, I didn't come into my interview day and be like, Hey, how often do you guys take call? Um, and how, you know, there is a time and a place to ask these questions. And so I think social media is a fantastic resource because we were talking about this hierarchy in medicine and how everything's very traditional in, in the traditional academic spaces. I think that hierarchy is a little bit flattened on social media. And so you can send a message to, um, you know, if someone wanted to send me a message and ask me about my experience here next year, if they were thinking of applying the mission, you know, I think that's a great way to use to use social media. Um, but there has to be a reasonable amount of decorum when talking about these more sensitive issues that could potentially seem like you're trying to get dirt on an institution. Yeah. So one of the the sayings that I don't know if I made it up, I think I did, is, <laughs> is, is don't go to a great institution, go to an institution that will make you great. And so when I talk about students making their school list, it's trying to figure out, right, doing lots of of introspection and and saying, what's important to me? You mentioned location earlier as as a potential Mm -hmm. important factor. I talk about curriculum, right? If, If I knew when I applied to medical school, the difference between traditional curriculums and systems based curriculums, which were less popular when when I went to school. I I would have thrived much better in a systems-based curriculum because to me, I I like seeing big picture stuff. And so sitting in in my pharmacology class, just memorizing pharmacology was the the worst experience of my life because I didn't have the the relationship of why it mattered. And so curriculum, class size, um, things that potentially help the student based on 
how they learn, right? Potentially for me, a flipped classroom wouldn't work because I have found that I learn by listening. And so I would have preferred, I, I didn't do it even then, I would have preferred to sit in a classroom and listen to the instructor. So a flipped classroom wouldn't help because I'd have to go learn all the stuff and then go to class and try to figure out how to integrate the information that I didn't learn, I didn't retain. Yeah. When, when you hear me talk about that as my kind of perspective on building a school list, where do you value that, uh, the, the students' kind of self-evaluation of what will help them do well? I had a very cynical thought actually while you were talking. And that is the fact that most of medical school is you teaching your stuff yourself anyways. Yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's changed a lot since I went to med school with, <laughs> with all of these third party tools coming on board, right? So cynical. You world um, was around when I was in med school, but all of the other tools um, are, are basically, why are we paying tuition when we're just buying this third party stuff to study for tests? sharing this Google Drive with uh, boards and beyond on it. Yeah, I just, and that's my initial cynical thought. And I think the second thing also is that um, it's really hard to, predict your needs in medical school before you get to medical school. I would like to say that I learned this, you know, I used my college study skills in med school, but the reality is I had to not only learn a bunch of stuff, I had to learn how to learn. Yep. And so I think you can make the same argument for students changing their interests as students not really knowing what will benefit them in um, med school. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, very little of that matters if you don't match. Yeah. Is my sort of bottom line. However, I mean, I, I did say that, you know, one through five for me is match outcomes, but location and curriculum and all of those other things are, are there too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what you can start getting into the weeds of when you are um, comparing schools. Yeah. Got it. Okay. It's hard to be a cynic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like it. I, I think it's a good discussion, right? And again, as you mentioned, right, it's not that they're not on your list. They're just less important for you um, than matching. And, and I agree 100% that, that a student has to match um, to be able to use this degree they're paying for, that they're going to have lots of debt over their head. And and we see typically they're, they're the the outlier um we see the news articles of the 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 med school graduate that's now working as a nurse five years after med school because they couldn't match and again i get cynical i'm like well i went to med school there are definitely classmates that i had that i'm like i would never want that person taking care <laughs> of any of my loved ones and so i think the system does does its job that not everyone should match right because they probably snuck through the process um, uh, getting into med school, but their their true colors really came came out during med school. And there are definitely people who, as you mentioned, right, their their light kind of burns out, and they realize that they don't want to be in medicine anymore, and so they they go do other things, and uh, and that's okay too, right? If if as long as they're happy, so it's hard, right? Again, there's there's no right way for a student to figure this out, and we're kind of forcing through students 23, 24 years old is kind of the average age of, of first year medical students. 
their frontal lobe is finally getting kind of evolved at that point. And they're still <laughs> figuring out who they are as a person and what they want their life to be like. I'm I'm 43. I'm still trying to figure it out. Right. <laughs> and and so it's it's hard to say, hey, here's three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Here's the rest of your life. <laughs> Good luck, kid. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. It's challenging to predict what your needs are going to be, what your interests are. And I think that's why my gut instinct is to sort of fall back on what I view as the primary outcome. Um, because I I didn't know what I wanted when I was applying in that school. Um yeah. and I think it's a lot easier now, having been through the match process and the anxiety and the five thousand dollars that I spent on my residency applications um, to prioritize that, right? I'm biased by my recent experience. And it's possible that as time goes on and maybe I get involved in medical education, I start caring more about the curricular elements. Yeah. Uh, I think I have those, those match blinders on a little bit now, but I do, I do stand by it. And I, I think it's very important. Yeah. And and as you mentioned, right, you you spent a lot of money um, to apply. If you look at the AAMC's revenue numbers over the last many years, their heiress uh, revenue has skyrocketed. The fear of not matching, I think, has become an epidemic um, yeah. uh, all by itself. And so students are basically applying to every single program in the country and program directors are like, what the heck? And, and we're back now to talking about step one and step two, right? Because yeah. that's their hand. Yeah. And, and so I was at a conference recently, um, and talking to a friend who is part of this residency process with the AAMC and, and she said, Hey, the AAMC is willing to make less money on air. So I'm like, Oh, that's very generous of them. They, they want to, they're, they're looking at ways to change the process, right? Whether it's I have a, an idea, if they could make it free. Oh, um, free, free, free. Yeah. Um, or just like flat fee, right? I love TMDSAS with their application. It's 200 bucks now, flat fee, all the schools, like done. Like make it so easy. Anyway, um, so hopefully the AAMC is listening to the program directors complaining that it's just getting out of hand. Uh, I don't know if you saw, there was there was one program, I forget the the specialty, where the program basically hid a like a, a treasure uh, uh, like a it was like a scavenger hunt you had to scroll to the very bottom of their residency page and there was a link that says if you are really interested in our program like click this link fill out this form and it was basically the students who are really interested in our program are gonna be on our page and reading everything and they're gonna find this link and those are the people that are going to pass through our filter. Not the thousand people that submitted, but the 200 people that found our link. And I was like, that's kind of tricky. And I kind of like it. <laughs> that is, I just rolled my eyes so hard. I was like, yeah. we can, we can pull magic tricks yeah. in terms of curbing applications out of our hats all we want. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're ever going to actually get a cap on applications because of the fear of lawsuits, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I'm hopeful that program signals do something to curb the applications, at least in anesthesiology, average match applicant did 16 interviews Mm -hmm. on the charting outcomes of the match 2022. We have 15 program signals this year. So essentially applicants to anesthesiology, and there are other specialties like this, are not going to get many interviews outside of the programs they signaled. So maybe 
Yeah. Maybe the average number of applications will come down. For, I hope. for someone listening, when you say signals and signaling, what, what do you mean by that? So um, there's two types of signals on the secondary component of the residency application. Program signals are your way of indicating to a program they are one of your top, most favorite, most special programs. And you indicate to them on a little drop down bar that you're sending them a signal. And so um, there are a lot of things to talk about with program signals, probably could fill up an entire episode about it. Yeah. But the important thing is a lot of residency programs are using that as their initial filter, which I think is reasonable. If I was a program director, I would want to look at the applicants who said, hey, you're one of my top programs first. And so my hope is that that curbs the applications, but also for students who maybe failed step one on the first try or don't have as much research, but have a really amazing personal statement or something like that. Mm -hmm. I hope that gets their application a look. Whereas before, when there were no signals, maybe they would have gotten passed over. What prevents a student from saying, you're my top choice to every single program they apply to? Interestingly, so before we had program signals, you could send a love letter to as many programs as yep. you want. Yeah. Unethical, unprofessional, and if you get caught, it looks really bad, but you could do that. So the, the um, equivalent for someone listening, because most of the audience is pre-meds, is, is that letter of intent, basically, to a medical school. Yeah. Like, if you accept me, I will come. Nothing to stop you from sending it to everyone. It's just a bad look if you do. If, yeah, and it, so that was the old sort of process. Mm -hmm. And now with program signals, there's a limit. So when you log into your application and indicate, and I'm using anesthesiology because that's the one I'm most familiar with, and say, I'm applying to anesthesiology, it says, here are your 15 signals. You have five gold and 10 silver. Here are the bars with a drop down of every program. Use them as you wish. Mm -hmm. And so there's no way that you could signal a 16th program because there's no space to do that on the application. Got and it. so neurology has three. Dermatology has like 25. And so depending on your specialty, you have a set limit on the number of application or on the number of program signals, excuse me, you can use on your application. Got it. So it's it's basically a ranking inside of a ranking, right? Because you're ranking your programs when you submit your your application, one through however many. And then within that, you're also ranking um, the the programs kind of uh, to, or it's it's kind of pre pre-ranking the ranking. Yeah, you're saying it's not like you're ranking them like a match list because yep. when residents when we apply to residency, we build a match list one through however many places you've interviewed. And it's literally in order of how much you want to be there yep. with signals. It's just, you've signaled them or you haven't. So yeah. they say, Hey, this person signaled me and they can't see other programs that you've signaled. So they just say, okay, Trisha Pendergast. Okay. Look, Oh, she signaled us at the university of Michigan. That's all the information they get. Yeah. Got it. Trisha, where can people go hear more about your, your fun rants on TikTok? <laughs> um, they can find me at Trisha Pendergrast MD on TikTok. I'm also on Twitter at TR Pender. Um, you can find me both places. And I have an email in my bio of, of the TikTok if people want to ask me questions about applying or want me to look at their personal statement for anesthesiology. Um, happy to do both. And you are starting your anesthesiology residency um into, about, five uh, <laughs> about five hours ago, uh, immediately you're, you're knee deep in modules about self-care. I'm sure <laughs> making oh, sure yeah. you survive mm -hmm. residency. Good luck with your residency. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. All right. There you have it. Go find Trisha Pendergrass, Dr. Trisha 
Pendergrass on all of the socials. TikTok is where I found her. And say hello. Let her know that you heard about her here on the podcast and you liked what she had to say. She has, I don't know where she finds time for this stuff. She's got tons of great videos breaking down lots of different topics and ideas. So go go follow her on the TikTok. I hope this was a great episode and you learned something new. I had a great discussion with her. I love having conversations where I don't agree with someone when it's something and somebody that we can have a conversation with. So, and uh, Dr. Pendergrass did not disappoint. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.